Well, chapter 7, chapter 7 is where we're at, and uh, we're going to be talking about uh, the priesthood, the high priesthood of Jesus, and more specifically about an individual uh, by the name of Melchizedek, Melchizedek. Uh, and so we'll, uh, we'll look into that and uh, see how that uh, connects with Christ and what the author, his point is. Now, by way of um, uh, just a few thoughts here, and that's kind of what's in that gray box, just by way of introduction on your outline, chapter 7 begins uh, a new section in Hebrews, uh, chapters 1 through 6, but chapter 7, uh, we pick up a new kind of emphasis uh, in the writer of Hebrews. And chapter 7 uh, is really, if you remember... Uh, I don't have it on the screen, but if you go back to <clears throat> chapter 5, verse 10, if you remember, uh, the writer was, uh, had this flow of thought, and, we, and he was talking about, uh, really, as you begin in chapter, oh, let's say chapter 4, verse 14, chapter 4, verse 14, when he talks about that we have a great high priest. Uh, who has passed through the heavens, chapter 5. He continues talking about our high priest, and which is Christ. Uh, and then he comes to verse 9 of chapter 5, sp speaks about him being made perfect, speaking again as of Christ as our high priest, how Christ became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. And verse 10, being designated by God a high priest, after the order of Melchizedek. So you see the writer is pivoting. He wants to talk about Jesus and the order of this Melchizedek. He wants to introduce that. But if you remember, he kind of pauses, and that's where we kind of got off a little bit in verse 11. He kind of takes a, a little bit of an of a, of a, of a exit to, uh, off the main ramp for a little bit. Uh, and he just kind of stops in the middle of, uh, and picks it up in verse 11. And that's where he begins this section of warning and, and encouragement about them uh, and their spiritual immaturity. Remember what he says in verse 11? I'm in chapter 5. Uh, he says, about this we have much to say. Now again, he, he kind of just stops cold after verse 10. He's getting ready to talk about this Melchizedek and the high priesthood of Jesus. And he says, and we have much to say about this, and it's hard to explain, but you have become dull of hearing. So from chapter 5, verse 11, uh, really through uh, roughly um, uh, the end of chapter 6, he, he just kind of goes off script, if you will, and is, uh, in, is really kind of admonishing them, encouraging them uh, about their own spiritual uh, immaturity. He talks in verse 12 uh, of chapter 5 or chapter 6, verse 12, that they may not be sluggish or lazy. Um, and uh, that's where in the middle of that context of that warning about their, their immaturity, and he kind of gives a hypothetical that maybe um, this immaturity is really maybe more of a, an, a, a fruit of or a lack of spiritual fruit of conversion. But so then he gets back to chapter 7. When we start chapter 7, he picks up where he left off 
in chapter 5, verse 10. And the reason, again, we've talked about that for several weeks, and that's really important uh, as you try to uh, understand and interpret uh, what is being said in that in-between. So really, when he comes to chapter 7, remember, he's not. they didn't write in seven or chapters and verse numbers. He just picks up where he left off in chapter 5, verse 10, and talking about the priesthood, and we'll talk about who this Melchizedek person is. Uh, but let me just uh, say a few things that are on your outline. Chapter 7 is really the, the focal point of the book of Hebrews, and it begins kind of a, the focal point, but it really kind of zeroes in on the uh, real critical nature of this overall warning. Remember who, who the audience is. He's writing to Jews that are Christians, and for various reasons that they are being um, uh, debating, uh, tempted to go back into the old Jewish Judaism to kind of return back to the, you know, to the laws, the ceremony, all those things. They really return back, even though they're ethnically, racially Jewish. Uh, but they are really by turning back and to abandon Christianity. Um, and we know from church history the persecution and the way that those who would convert to Christianity that were formerly Jewish was pretty harsh and severe. And so, you know, they were, they were struggling. That's why the emphasis is upon persevering and standing. And, and that's why he goes through this contrast of how we began the book of Hebrews and how Jesus is the apex of as God's messenger. Uh, he's not like all the other prophets. There was many prophets that came in the past, but now Jesus is the final word. And remember, he talks about the superiority of Jesus over angels and over Moses. What's he doing? He's just, again, he's just painting and layering the, the, the greatness of who Jesus is and the work that Jesus has done with kind of the underlying uh, argument, why would you go back? Because God is not in that system anymore. That's not what God is doing. God is working in and through Jesus and what Jesus has done. That's his whole... So if you go back, there's no coming back. There is no hope in that old system. You want to go back to using the law as a means of gaining righteousness and earning... Good luck. Well, he didn't say good luck, but it's not there. So the central... Going back to your outline there in those, that gray box... Uh, the emphasis is upon the priesthood in chapter 7, and that's very, very critical. Uh, by way of reminder <clears throat> about the priesthood in the Old Testament, no sacrifices could be made except by the priest, and no forgiveness of sins could be had apart from the sacrificial system that God had implemented. And, and uh, again, there really was no removal of sin, but under the Old Testament, it was just a, a covering of sin, only... In Christ is there the permanent removal of sin, but it was just a there was just a covering, and those sacrifices were a perpetual visual reminder of the ultimate sacrifice. Looking ahead, we look back to the cross. In one sense, they were looking towards the cross, even though I don't think they had the cross in their mind. But that system we know was a picture or a type, and we'll talk more about that in a little bit. But, there was, uh, but that's the way that God worked under the old covenant system. Obedience to the law 
was exceedingly important, but the offering of sacrifices was even more important. And so that was a requirement that was essential. And so the priesthood uh, was essential as in part of God's uh, uh, organization in the religious aspect of how the people were to meet God, how the people were to come before Him, the temple, the, the, the rituals, all those things. God had an orderly priesthood uh, set up, we know, by what tribe? What tribe was identified with the priesthood? Levi Strauss. No, just Levi. Just Levi. Just Levi. Uh, the Levitical priesthood, the Levi, the tribe of Levi. And so uh, the priesthood was, was essential. I mean, again, like Moses, the law, these were, these were big, pivotal things, but probably... In the argument, if you will, or in the desire to persuade this audience to stick with Christ, you can almost imagine they were being told and saying, well, you know, they're going around teaching about Jesus as our high priest, but he's not part of the priestly line. You better stick to what God has commanded. You better stick to the priestly line. And, and that's why I thought it'd be good to kind of, we'll review that in just a minute. But remember... That the law of God was given, uh, the law was, uh, that God gave to Israel, the law was good and holy. In fact, even Paul said in Romans uh, chapter 7, verse 12, that the law is holy and the commandments are holy, righteous, and good. But the problem was not so much in the, the law, but the problem was in our sin. Paul would say in Galatians that if there could be a law that could remove sin, God would have provided that. But law, as Paul uh, would say in Galatians, uh, was Paul said, I didn't even, I, I didn't even know my sin. Uh, the law revealed my sin because the law revealed God's holy perfection. It's kind of like, I don't know what a foot is till I get a measuring stick, till I get a ruler out, right? And that tells me, oh, that's three inches. I would have guessed four inches. I would have been wrong. But the standard told me what was correct. Well, the law was what? Was God's holy standard of perfection. Um, and so the problem was sin. And so in the old covenant system, the sacrificial system, the, the priests, uh, not, every, not anybody could just go and offer their own sacrifice, could they? Do you remember what happened to Saul? Remember there was a, that Saul was getting ready to have a major battle? And uh, Samuel, he was waiting for Samuel to come and offer the sacrifice uh, to the army. And he kept waiting and waiting. And Samuel was stuck somewhere at uh, Champion's Gate, you know, and he was late. <laughs> uh, he kept waiting. And what did Saul do? Do you remember? He just said, give me that thing. I'll do it myself. That was a no-no. That was a big deal. In fact... Uh, Samuel, through the word of the Lord, says, because you have, and I'm paraphrasing, because you've acted so presumptuously, you've shown disregard. Uh, and it was at that. We sometimes think it's later, even though later um, uh, he did some things later when he was supposed to go and uh, slay uh, the Amalekites and 
They went and took the best and all their choice spoils and came back. You remember Saul or Samuel showed up and he heard the, the bleating, not the bleating, but the bleating of the sheep. And just, you know, it's kind of like just when your parent used to show up, right when you were doing something you weren't supposed to, right? And Samuel came in and, of course, Saul tried to make it, well, I saved all these animals to offer them to the Lord. That was a big fat lie, you know? Kind of like, I'm playing the lottery because I want to pay off the church or whatever it is. You know, you know, no, you know. But, um, but so, so not anybody could just offer a sacrifice. That was the priestly class. And uh, just by way of reminder that I think would be helpful is I want to just remind us about a few things concerning the Levitical priesthood. And I've got five things there listed. This is just by way of reminder Remember the tribe of Levi, when the 12 tribes were allotted land, Levi, Levites were not given an allotment of land. Uh, we won't turn to it, but you may want to write down Deuteronomy 18, verses 1 through 8, and it tells why, <clears throat> because uh, the Lord says, I am their portion. So they were, not giving, they were not given an allotment of the land, of the promised land of Canaan. <clears throat> and the Lord says, I'm going to be their inheritance. But just a reminder of a few of these things. Some of these may be new, but I just they'll be helpful because we'll be talking about the priesthood. Uh, first, uh, the entire tribe of Levi uh, was dedicated by God for religious service. Uh, Deuteronomy 18 is one of those. There's others. The, uh, although all priests were Levites, not all Levites were priests. All priests, in fact, uh, not only had to be descended from Levi, but they also, uh, also from Aaron. Remember Aaron? He was Moses' brother. So they had to be able to, in the genealogy, and that'll, that'll be something we'll talk about, they had to be able to, def that's why the genealogical records and birth records, especially for a Levitical priesthood, was such a big deal. Because again, not anybody can say, well, yeah, my uncle, you know, Steve or Stan or whatever, uh, you know, he was a Levite, you know, and this, that, and the other. No, you had to prove it. You had to prove your pedigree, if you will. You had to prove that you were descended. Now, one of the supposed, and I don't keep up a lot with this, but supposedly one of the issues regarding, uh, there's multiple issues in the rebuilding of the temple, was uh, one, getting, getting the Muslims off the property. That's a biggie. But anyway, uh, but in the rebuilding of the temple uh, is being able to prove a Levitical priesthood. Because if you remember, what happened in the year 70 A.D.? temple was destroyed. Burned. In fact, the records and historians talk about the heat and the intensity that the gold was liquefied. So there are no historical records, so to speak. Now, I'm not, you know, if somebody wants to claim they found it in some jar and some, I don't know, I don't keep up with all that. But I know that if it isn't just rebuilding the temple, because part of the rebuilding the temple is to reinstitute the sacrificial system. Right? In the, in the, under the economy of Judaism, the only reason that stopped was because the temple was taken away. The temple was destroyed. It was, it's, it's a desire to return back to that. 
And so if you're going to have a temple, and really all they need is a tent to classify as a temple. They don't need to build Herod's monstrosity, right? But if you're going to have a temple and you're going to reinstitute sacrifices with what you do in the temple, you've got to, in other words, in order to be legal, you've got to have a legal priesthood. And that's, you know, uh, could be an issue, could be a problem. Secondly, the Levites were subject to the king in Israel just as much as the other tribes. They weren't a ruling class. Um, uh, no Levite could be king. That's important, as we'll look at here in a little bit. Uh, but they were set aside for the religious service uh, I don't want to call them civil servants, but they were set aside for the religious priestly duties of the nation. So they were subject to the king. Thirdly, the priestly sacrifices, including the one by the high priest on the Day of Atonement, were not permanent. Okay, They had to be done perpetually uh, every year, uh, repeated and repeated, I mean, on the Day of Atonement, but, but the sacrificial... Uh, the, the sacrifices, they were, they were repeated continually. There was no permanence. There was no means of permanent forgiveness. There was no, uh, that's why I said, think of it in terms as those sacrifices merely covered sin. They didn't remove sin. They didn't take away sin. Only the blood of Christ, only the final and the death of Christ can take away sin, okay? Fourth, the Levitical priesthood was hereditary, uh, you couldn't go to school to be a, a you know, a, a Levite priest. You had to be born into the family. Uh, a priest, uh, if you were born, you, uh, uh, you were entered into, and not, again, not all were priests. Some served in other, uh, other non-priestly roles, maybe singers, instrumentals, uh, worship leaders, or whatever you want to call them, non-priestly roles. But nevertheless, if you were part of the Levitical family or Levitical tribe, you were that was what you were born into. And fifth, uh, just as the effects of the sacrifices were temporary, so was the time of priestly service. So there was not a permanent high priest. When a uh, man reached the age of 30, he could enter into the priesthood, but he could only serve until the age of 50 in Numbers 8, 24, and 25, uh, of which he was forced into retirement. And so again, there was a constant turnover in regards to uh, a priest and then also into the uh, various levels of the priesthood, okay? So I say all that as introduction. We come to chapter 7 to have that kind of as a, as a backdrop. And I mentioned how the writer is continuing where he left off in chapter 5, verse 10, where he left off in speaking about how Jesus is a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. And now, chapter 7, verse 1, he comes back to this, talking about this Melchizedek. And we're going to talk about that and how that fits in to uh, Christ, okay, and how, what, how that plays a role. Um, again, uh, he has a concern that there are Jewish Christians that are wanting to go back, uh, renounce Christianity, return back to the old system, the old trappings, the old, uh, you know, the synagogues, all those things. Uh, and 
and especially when it came to the issue of the priesthood. This was something, you know, we, we tend to not really um, grasp the uh, seriousness of it, but this was a system, a religious system that had been in place for 1,500 years. And now you're telling me just to forget it? Just to forget it and switch? I mean, some of you may have come out of certain backgrounds, and, uh, you know, I know there's fo- folks that you know, um, whether it's Roman Catholic or whatever. Um, and, you know, sometimes that transition is difficult because, you know, that was so embedded in your family and the way you did things. And, and so even in a much greater way, uh, this was just all, you know, wrapped into the very identity of what it means to be a Jew uh, and how I'm to be a practicing Jew and how I'm to honor the Lord. So the priesthood and, uh, is a big deal. So uh, they had been told to now reject, just like we're not under the law, reject the Aaronic priesthood, and that God has established a new priesthood, if you will, or Jesus as our high priest uh, that has replaced that. So, uh, so don't go back to the old system. Uh, stick with the superior new system I don't want to say system, but the high priesthood of Christ. And so the writer's got a challenge here. He's got a big challenge. He's got to be able to prove that the priesthood of Jesus, just like he's been doing in earlier with Moses, angels, the prophets, he's got to prove that the priesthood of Christ is better superior, uh, that Aaronic Levite priesthood is inferior, that there's, now it's been replaced by a greater. And he's got, a, he's got that challenge to convince them of the superiority of Christ. So in your outline there, there's just um, five headings to help us walk through the chapter. And so we'll just kind of work our way through those, and hopefully we'll be able to finish the chapter tonight. But number one, this is on your outline, Christ's priesthood is of a higher order than that of the priests of Judaism. Again, keep in mind, he's writing to Jews. He's writing to those who the priesthood and that whole way of entering into and maintaining relationship to God, that is just baked in to my very core and identity, all right? So he's got this challenge, and verses 1 through 10 really is the... I hate to say the meat, and that's not really the right word I want to use, but, but really it's, it's in chapter 7, verses 1 through 10 is the real, um, you know, that's the, that's the big uh, component there, and the remainder is just kind of a commentary or, or a bit of elaboration of what he talks about in these first 10 verses. So we'll spend a little more time in verses 1 through 10 than we do in others. Now, in the Old Testament, you had... Uh, two great priests in the Old Testament. You had uh, Aaron and you had Melchizedek. Melchizedek. Uh, And of the two, the writer of Hebrews shows us that Melchizedek, of the two human priests, that Melchizedek, this guy Melchizedek, um, is the greater. And that ultimately Christ is greater than both of them. Uh, And the Melchizedek plays an important role. Role in that. 
Um, Genesis 14, and I do think I have it uh, fixed where we can look at it on the screen. Uh, we're introduced to Melchizedek in Genesis chapter 14. And uh, if you remember, in chapter 14, this is Melchizedek uh, and Abraham. Okay, Genesis 14, and this is Melchizedek where he is with Abraham. And so I'm just going to kind of read through it uh, because it's, it, it, as the writer of Hebrews assumes people are familiar with it, uh, let's be familiar with it ourselves. After his return, talking about Abraham, uh, Abraham has returned back from uh, battle against this, I think, I, I think you pronounced it, uh, Ked Dorleamor. Ked, it's not Ched, Ked Orliamor, uh, but I know it's Ked, how I get the other, but, uh, and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shava, that is the king's valley, whoops, I didn't want to do that, and Melchizedek, okay, so uh, Abraham's returning back from battle, uh, he had defeated this, uh, this Ked Orliamor, and the kings who were with him, and one of the kings that were with him was this king of Sodom. Uh, and he went out to meet him in the valley of Shiva, that is the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. And it says Melchizedek, how does it identify him? He was priest of the Most High. And he was king of Salem. And he brings uh, Abraham some some uh, refreshments, if you will. Um, let's keep going. And he blessed him. Melchizedek blessed Abraham. That's a kind of important thing we'll come back to. And he said, Melchizedek said, Blessed be Abraham by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies. He's giving, reminding him to uh, give credit to the Lord. Uh, that uh, the Lord has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram, this is kind of an important thing we'll come back to, uh, gave a tenth of everything. What could be another way we might would say that in another uh, term? What did he do? If you give a tenth towards something, you've done what? You've tithed. So Abraham uh, tithed, gave a tenth of all the spoils he had to Melchizedek. Um, and uh, I'm just going to leave it there. I'm not going to, uh, I'll just go back to leave it at Hebrews 7. But that's all I want to say about that. But so the context where we first see Melchizedek appear is in Genesis chapter 14 with Abraham. And there's a couple of things that we want to make note of is that this is a real historical event. This is a real historical event. Uh, there was a real Melchizedek. And one of the things that is significant as we walk along through this is there's two things that the writer uses this, uh, what is recorded here, as his argument about Melchizedek being superior to Aaron. And, and we'll, that'll make sense in a little bit. But Abraham did two things, or there's two things that took place. Now, you know, Abraham, if Moses is a big deal, I mean, go back in before Moses. I mean, the, 
The one God made covenant. I mean, the beginning of the beginning, Abraham, right? That's, that's even bigger. And so what you find in showing how this Melchizedek and his priesthood, uh, he did a couple of things. And it's not on the screen, but we already read it. One, he blessed Abraham. He blessed Abraham. That speaks of one where he could speak a blessing over Abraham. Abraham's usually in the role of co as covenant receiver. He's usually the one given the blessings, right? So this person was recognized by Abraham as being superior because he blessed Abraham. But really, there's another factor uh, that Abraham did that showed Melchizedek's superiority, and that would be what? What did Abraham do? He did what? He tithed to him. Tithing, uh, and especially in this case, was a recognition. You tithe upward. You're tithing in a recognition of that which is over you as a, as a tribute. And so Abraham recognized his superiority, or recognized rather his, his priest of the Most High, because he received his blessing, and Abraham in turn, in, in a sense, uh, I don't want to say just as a tribute, but as a response of this uh, recognition of his role, uh, he tithed to him, gave him a tenth of all the spoils. Now, wait a minute. It says that Melchizedek was a priest. Where's Levi? Where's Levi? Well, he ain't been born yet. He's not around. He hasn't been born. But yet, the writer of Hebrews says that Levi, as the Levitical priesthood, is a part of this thing. Look down at... Uh, um, well, let me just kind of read here. Let's read through it a bit and uh, so we can keep moving. Uh, and now we're in Hebrews chapter 7, verse 1. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings. And to him, Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness, and then he is also king of Salem. Salem means peace. Melchizedek means righteousness. Jerusalem, city of peace. Uh, Salim uh, means peace. So king of Salim, uh, that is king of peace. Uh, Melchizedek is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues to be a priest forever. I just want to stop there and go over to uh, find verse, verse 10. When I said, where is Levi? The writer of Hebrews said, well, Levi was there, kind of, because he was in the loins of his ancestor, Abraham, when Melchizedek met him. Why does he say that? Meaning, because the whole argument is, is you're going to have to prove the superiority of a priesthood greater than Aaron, greater than the Levite. And so the writer says, well, he wasn't necessarily physically there, but yet he was in the downline. He was in the, uh, the what do I want to say, the, uh, the, the, the uh, seed of Abraham. So in one sense... Levi and that priesthood is in Abraham, maybe not yet birthed yet, but Melchizedek is superior because he preceded Aaron. 
He preceded, or preceded Levi, if you will, preceded the whole Levitical line that would come out of Abraham. So again, his argument is, if we're going to give up the priestly system under the old covenant, we've got to have something greater to go to. And that was where he's showing and using Melchizedek. Now let me say something about Melchizedek. Melchizedek, uh, as I said, uh, is a real uh, historical person. Uh, it does say um, here, um, let's see, um, it says he is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God as he continues a priest forever. Now, some people <clears throat> have looked at that and said, oh, that must be that somehow he's a, uh, you know, maybe some kind of angelic being, maybe he is uh, some type of pre, and going back to Abraham now in Genesis 14, maybe he is what is sometimes referred to as, is a, as a theophany. That's a pre-incarnate personage of Jesus prior to Bethlehem, if you will. Okay? So maybe they're saying it's a, like the angel of the Lord. And, and some of those, there's different ones when um, uh, pictures that people believe are pre-incarnate uh, uh, pictures or pre-incarnate, um, uh, what's the word? I want to say presence, uh, showing up, Jesus showing up in the Old Testament, but showing up not certainly in incarnate bodily form, but showing up as uh, sometimes there's passages that refer to the angel of the Lord that some say that could be a pre-birth, pre-incarnate Jesus, okay? But Melchizedek isn't that. Just because it says he's without father, mother, or genealogy, the, the thing you need to keep in mind is that there is no record of his father or mother or genealogy. There's no record of his beginning of days nor end of life. So it doesn't necessarily mean that he is some type of supernatural being, uh, meaning that he's an angel or he's, uh, you know, again, a pre, pre-existent, pre, not pre-existent, that'd be heresy, pre-incarnate uh, Jesus. Uh, it just it, the point of the writer, uh, it's not important because he, all he's using Melchizedek for, okay? Don't miss this. He's just using Melchizedek as a picture, as a type. Do you know what a type is? A T-Y-P-E in, in typology, in typology? Give me something that might be a type in the Old Testament that is fulfilled in the New Testament. Can you think of something that is, a, that is a type or a picture in the Old Testament and we see its fulfillment in the New? Can you think of some examples? Teresa? Yeah, there you go. We're just talking about that. Uh, it was a type. It was a picture. It was a preview of coming attractions. Uh, what else? What might be another type? Marisol, did you have your hand up? No? Okay. Evie? Yeah, the, the cloud and the whole, yeah, uh, the Passover. Passover is a type, a picture of the, the you know, when, they, when the angel the, the, saw the blood on the doorpost. That's a picture. What about the, when, and Moses, when that serpent on a pole, that, uh, uh, that when they looked to the serpent, uh, which was, again, a picture of the, the, the sin-crucified Messiah, that was a type. The Sabbath, when we talked about in Hebrews 4, the Bible talks about the Sabbath, 
The rest, that's what the Sabbath rest, was a type, a picture of the rest that Jesus provided, okay? That we rest from our works. He is a, uh, the Sabbath was a type that pointed to the fulfillment and the finished work of Christ. So you see what types are. Now where some people get in trouble and come up with crazy doctrines or crazy interpretations is there, there's, when you interpret the Bible, there's got to be certain guidelines, okay? Everybody can't just, you know, do their own thing. So a type, a type is only a type or a symbol, if that's better, any more easier, <clears throat> is if it is, if there is what is called an anti-type or there is a picture in the news. So in other words, I can't say, and I even heard this in a sermon, Preach is good, but it's, it's not, you know, it really sounds good to preach it. But you remember when Goliath, uh, or Goliath, when David went after Goliath, how many stones did he pick up? You sure? Five. All right. No, it was some of them. Three, that's a good holy number. Five smooth stones, right? Well, he only needed one, and I know there's some argument, speculation that. He had one for each of Goliath's brothers or whatever. We don't know that definitively. Uh, that may be true. But I actually heard somebody preach, and they were trying to illustrate the fivefold ministry in the New Testament, you know, apostle, prophet, and gave the picture that that was a picture of the fivefold. Well, it pr- sounds good, but it, that doesn't have anything to do with that, all right? So that's a misuse of analogy. Uh, what the writer of Hebrews is doing here, and there's probably a lot more, and that you call what we call that, we call that spiritualizing a passage. So as you maybe read something and you just you get goosebumps and you think, oh, that must be this and whatever. Well, don't don't do that because again, don't don't give it the authority of God's word unless God affirms it, and that's the only way a type sometimes prophecy, you know, a prophecy concerning Jesus. Those you've heard me say and others say that all the Old Testament prophecies concerning Jesus' first coming were fulfilled literally. And we say, well, why would we assume the prophecies of his second coming wouldn't have some literal in their, in their coming in the fulfillment of those? So those, those prophecies of Jesus were fulfilled literally. And uh, so, so make sure that you understand the right place and use of symbols in the Bible. Now, the reason, the point of why did he pull this Melchizedek guy out is because he's only using Melchizedek as a, as a picture, a type, or something that is an analogy to show the superiority of Jesus. Melchizedek really existed. We know that from the record, Genesis 14. We know that from the historical record of the Old Testament but remember what he's trying to do. He's trying to convince them and show them that there is a superior priesthood beyond just Levi. Okay, So, so Melchizedek is only a type. He's only a picture. He's not trying to draw every little nuance and say that Jesus is Melchizedek. He's just saying like Melchizedek was a real high priest who exercised real authority in that he could bless Abraham. Abraham recognizes authority uh, in that he tithed to to him. So that must mean that there was a priesthood of some type that existed before the Levitical priesthood, something that actually was superior to the Levitical Aaronic 
priesthood. You with me? You with me? Because I'll repeat it all over again, Lynette. No, but I mean, I want you to make sure, you know, because again, I, I admit it's a little tricky argument here, but you've got to get this because this is a pivotal part of the book of Hebrews, and it's essential to get what chapter 7 is all about. He's just saying, okay, you want a superior priesthood? Because they're like, who's greater than Aaron? Or who's, you know, the Levi? Who, who tops that? Well, how about Melchizedek? He functioned as a priest unto the Lord. In fact, the fact that uh, Levi and Aaron and all those Levitical priests, their DNA genes were in Abraham. So in one sense, he exercised authority even over Aaron or even over the Levites. I keep using those interchangeably. He's just establishing that there is a priesthood greater than Aaron. Because they knew, because that, because again, it's like, hey, if we're gonna, if we're gonna abandon, if we're gonna abandon the priesthood, because remember, what did the priesthood do? That was the means by which, under the old system, you were kept perpetually in right standing before the Lord. Your neighbor couldn't offer sacrifices for you. So that's kind of a big deal. So like, okay, we can handle a lot of this other stuff. You know, we, we can, you know. But that, that gets down to, you know, eternal. I mean, that gets down to right standing. All right. Again, I don't pretend it's, it's a... Because, um, again, it, we have to kind of put ourselves a little bit in that, that frame of thinking. But it's helpful because next week or in the week after, we'll talk about, again, the superiority of the new covenant... And again, what, what does he keep doing? He's showing how under Christ, everything's better. Everything's greater. Everything tops anything the old covenant had. Okay? Old co- Remember, this is Paul, Paul's argument in Colossians, um, Colossians 2. And uh, <coughs> go around verse 16. He was dealing with these false teachers in the church at Colossae, and this seems to be a trait with a lot of them. They were coming in. They weren't throwing out Jesus, but they were saying, you need to do all these other things, kind of like typical cults do. You know, uh, you need to obey this. You need to, and one of the things, they, they, had a, they had a lot of mishmash practices, and one of the mishmash practices they had was some elements of Jewish, uh, the Jewish religion that they were, they were mixing in as things that you had to maintain and follow. Look at verse 8. He says, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit. That's what's going on there. And and he goes on down. He says, verse 16, Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink. Because they were saying, you know, we need to go back and part of this religious smorgasbord, you know, that we got going. You got to maintain, oh yeah, let's maintain those dietary laws of... uh, of the Old Testament, even though they weren't even Jews. He said, let no one pass judgment on you in question of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. So again, they're just kind of throwing some, some Jewish elements in there. But what does he say, verse 17? These are a what? Of the things to come. Uh, and you've heard me give a pitch, uh, an example, you know, that if I went out to Longhorn for a nice dinner and uh, uh, I didn't take sherry, but I took just a really nice picture of her. And I sat at in the booth and, and I just sat and I ate my steak 
and my prime rib, and I just could enjoy that picture. Well, that's silly, because the real Sherry is sitting at home eating a bologna sandwich. She's not going to be too happy. I went to Longhorn without her. And so he's saying, why are you, why are you putting so much emphasis in these shadows or types? But I just want you to see the use of these things. They had their place, but now, now that the reality has come, and that's what he says in Colossians, now that the fulfillment has come, you don't need those things. You don't need those types and shadows. All right, let's get back to Melchizedek here. Look at verse 3 of chapter 7. Let me find verse... Yeah, there it is. Now, the reason we don't... Again, talking about this Melchizedek, and this is an important... Look at verse 3 on the screen. He is without father or mother or genealogy. That's just saying that there's no, there's no record of it. It's not saying that he just kind of fell out of the sky. If he did, uh, then he would have a much different... We'd have to look at him a little more differently than... But there's no record... Uh, there's no genealogical record. And again, he's only using that as a point to say, he, he, in an earthly sense, we have no record of his beginning or end of days. And he's just, he's just again, he's trying to just use that analogous to say and make the argument that Jesus has no beginning and no end of days. Okay, He's just using it as a picture. He's not saying this equals this perfectly. He's just it's, it's like this. It's a type. It's a picture. Okay? The picture, the type is never perfect. Right? The type uh, in the Old Testament of the, the animal sacrifices. They weren't perfect. They, you know, the perfect was the fulfillment in Jesus. But they were just shadows. They were just, they were just broad sketches, outlines that give you a preview of, of the better that would come and take their place. That's all he's doing with Melchizedek here. He's using him as an example of saying, hey, there actually, is, there actually is a priest over your Levitical or Aaronic. But he said this, this Melchizedek, he's without father or mother or genealogy. He doesn't have beginning of days or end of life, but resembling the Son of God. See, he's resembling. He's just, he's not, he's not, he's not a copy or he's not, he just, he's just resembling. He's just, he just provides us some, some, some analogous ways to consider as you're struggling with accepting Jesus as your high priest, well, here's a historical precedence that there actually was a priesthood of some form or the other, but there was a priesthood that Father Abraham even recognized. I think all he's trying to do Let's go back to the basic struggle they're having. You want us to give up the priesthood as the means that we come before the Lord. You're wanting us to give, you want us to give all that up. And he's saying, yeah, but I'm wanting you to give it up because there's something that has supplanted it. There is something that is far superior. And they're like, well, what could be superior to Levi, to the, the Levites? He said, Melchizedek, because the Levites, Levi, was not even born yet. And in one sense, Levi was subservient to Melchizedek because he was in the download. He was in the DNA. He was in the future family of Abraham. So in one sense, he was in Abraham, and in one sense, he 
was under Melchizedek. So he's just trying to show them that there is precedence to look beyond the Levites and to consider ultimately and make the argument that Jesus is and has fulfilled that role as high priest. Melchizedek isn't important only in that he is just an Old Testament picture that the writer can use to draw some connections to and make the point that there is another priest besides Aaron or Levi. I keep switching them all up, but they're the same group. Does that make sense? That, that's, that's the whole thing. So anyway, let's pick it up. Number two, Christ's priesthood is more effective than that of the priests of Judaism. Um, let's skip over to verse 11. Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, remember he says, if, if it had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek rather than the one named after the order of Aaron? Well, we know that there is no perfection under the law, right? For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. So he's saying that the remember that Christ is the end of the law, right? Christ has put away the law, all the ordinances and the law that was against us requiring death. Going back to Colossians 1, he nailed the ordinances to the cross. We are, we are no longer under law, we are under grace, right? So his argument is, you do, away, you do away with the law, then you've totally gutted the very underpinnings that the Levitical priesthood even exists. Do you see what he's saying here? What is he doing? He's just, he's just dismantling. Because again, they're, they're, they're looking back. You know? They're looking back like that, you know... Your high school days that you hated, but you look back and think, oh, those were such great times. And the time you're in it, you're like, oh, you just can't wait to get out of there. And he's trying to, again to dismantle because their literal eternity is at stake. And he, so he says here, when there is a change in the priesthood, that means there's a change in the law as well. Well, how did it change? Well, the law is done away with. The very underpinnings by which the priesthood exists were codified in the law, so you can't have one without the other. For the one of whom these things are spoken belong to another tribe. What tribe is Jesus associated with? Tribe of Judah. See, you could hear them saying, well, wait a minute, whoa, whoa, whoa. You want us to buy into them being a high priest, a priest? All right, well, we could be a little more convinced if he was at least from the tribe of Levi. But he's not. He's from the tribe of Judah. But it doesn't matter. Because there's a greater priesthood. Right? Melchizedek wasn't from any tribe. Um, for the one whom these things are spoken, i.e. Jesus, belong to another tribe from which no one has ever served at the altar. Meaning, no one except a Levite could, could offer sacrifices. Benjamites couldn't do it. Saul was a Benjamite. 
And that, you know, you know what happened to him. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, and in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about the priests. Because again, the entire priestly system is embedded into the law. Remember the law, there's, two, there's three aspects of the law. You have what is sometimes referred to as the, the moral law. Sometimes we refer to that as the Ten Commandments. Then you have the civil law. That's about, you know, all the, you know, how to, uh, you know, all the laws concerning usury and borrowing, you know, all that. Because remember, a nation needs laws. You know, it needs land, needs a king, needs laws. Other, you know, be anarchy. So they had, they had civil laws, but they also had ceremonial laws. Feasts, holy days, uh, cleansing if somebody was a leper and they were to be cleansed. You know, in other words, that, so you had three aspects of the law. So the entire legal apparatus that undergirded the priests, it had said nothing about anybody from being from Judah. This becomes even more evident. Here he's kind of getting now. He's moving in for the, for, I don't want to say the kill. That's not the right word. This becomes, <coughs> this becomes even more evident when another priest arises. Now there again, in the what? The likeness. He's not saying he's Melchizedek, but he just used Melchizedek as a type, as that picture is. As an example, they would be familiar with who has become a priest, he's talking about Jesus, not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent. Again, you want to be a priest, you better be born in the tribe of Levi. That's not true of Jesus. But by the power of an indestructible life. Now, I don't, I didn't, I don't have this on the screen, but one of the, the key scriptures that is quoted in chapter 7, actually it's quoted, yeah, it's quoted, look down in verse, um, verse 17. Melchizedek is mentioned not only in Genesis 14, but he's mentioned, and the writer brings this in, in verse 17 and the latter part of verse 21. And he's quoting from Psalm 110, verse 4, where prophetically... Speaking of Messiah, it says you are a priest forever. Can't be an Aaronic priest. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And you go down to verse uh, 21. The Lord has sworn about what he is declaring over that we know Jesus as our priest. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. Well, he's not speaking about any human priest. Because there were no priests that lasted forever. 50 years of age, here's your watch, here's your, you know, little, here's your dinner from uh, Golden Corral, and uh, here's your, yeah, here's a hundred bucks. No, I don't know what they did. Remember, the earthly priesthood was temporary. And I, I won't read it, I think I have the reference to Galatians 3, that the law was only intended, remember Paul's language, the law was to be a guardian, to be a, a, a pedagogue 
that was a picture of the word there in the Greek is a picture of a hired nanny that was paid to take the kids to school. And Paul uses that word pedagogue. Uh, ESV, I think, uses guardian, may say something else. But in Galatians 3, it said the law really existed like that, that nanny, if you will, to take us by the hand and lead us to Christ. The law was only intended to reveal the greatness of our sin and the holiness of God so that we would see our need for a Savior. But the law, and all it did was reveal. It didn't do anything. But it was intended to lead us, to drive us to Christ, as Galatians 3. All right, number three, real quick. We'll go through these real quick. I'm just going to make a comment and we'll move on so we can finish it. Number three, Christ's priesthood is more firmly established than that of the priests of Judaism. The only thing I want you to see there, and I won't try to flip it to the screen, look down at verse, um, and he's just saying verse 20, and he's making the argument there, is that, as, and he quotes that Psalm 110 verse 4, of how these priests on the earthly sense, they were temporary, but the Lord calls this high priest in Jesus that he's a priest forever. He's greater. And he entered the priesthood because of the oath the Father gave. And it's irreversible. Number four, Christ's priesthood is of longer duration than that of the priests of Judaism. No priest lived forever. There was always that constant turnover. I found out the doctor I've been going to for three years, he's doing something else after my next visit in a few weeks. And I'm like, are you kidding me? You can't leave. I don't want to get used to another doctor, right? You know, I got used to this priest, and now there's another one, you know? Listen, with Jesus, he's the same forever. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. He will never change. Yeah. Yeah, because that's the very next thing he gets into. Yeah, that's what chapter 8's about. That he's a high priest over a new covenant. See, he just... So, so again, if you're going to have a new covenant, you better have a new yeah, headmaster that's permanent that's not going to be keep changing because the new covenant doesn't, isn't going to keep changing. So yeah, chapter 8, uh, that's where he gets into that. And uh, builds that. And um, number five, Christ's priesthood is exactly suited to the sinner's need. Let me just close by reading verse 26 and 28. <clears throat> For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifice daily. The, the, old, the earthly priest, first for his own sins, and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. Verse 28, For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath that he talked about and quoted from Psalm 110, verse 4, but the word of the oath which came later than the law appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. Something I skipped but it kind of ties in. I should have read it earlier. Look back up at verse 23. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he, verse 24, Jesus holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Now look at this, verse 25. This is why we need this priest. Because consequently he is able to save 
to the uttermost. Those guys couldn't, but he can. Those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. The Bible talks about Jesus as our advocate, that Jesus always lives to make intercession for us. He stands as our constant, continual high priest, as our representative, that when the Father looks at me, he sees Jesus, he sees me in Christ. And you know what? You better have a holy, blameless, perfect high priest, and one who's not going to die, one who's not going to leave, and know that the permanency of my salvation depends on the permanency of that high priest, that I am secure forever because of the permanency of that high priest before the Father, if you will, in that picture, representing me. You ever had a bad lawyer? Maybe never had a lawyer, that's okay, but... <laughs> All right, I'll go there, but you want to make sure you've got a good representative. We've got the best representative, our high priest, who forever lives to make intercession for us. He's not trying to talk the Father out of doing, you know, punishing us. That's, that's not what he's doing. He's not what he's saying. He's just saying that Jesus, if you're not in Christ, if you're not in Christ, and that's his soul, that's his argument here, guys. Don't be under the law. Don't be in Moses. He can't help you. You better be in Christ. And here's, here's the superiority of Jesus as our high priest who is forever and ever and ever. And you want to go back? You want to reject all this? And he would just say, well, who's going to represent you? Who's going to represent you? Moses? Because if the law, if the law is going to be what defends you, yeah, who wants that? You want the law or you want Jesus? And that is why no one but Jesus matters. And that's why, yeah, it is, this is a tricky, because, you know, the whole concept, but just remember, Melchizedek, the whole purpose there is just to show these folks that there is a priesthood in an earthly basis that is greater than the Levites. And he uses that as kind of a launching pad to show them that in a greater way, Jesus has fulfilled that type and that picture that Melchizedek has and the inferiority of the, the Levites and the, Le the Aaronic priesthood. Um, so there's one sacrifice. He offered himself, and uh, you need to have Jesus. That's his whole, whole argument there. So You got it? I'm going to quiz you next week. I'm like, oh, why can't... It'd be, you know, I think, gosh, I just ought to skip that. But, you know, that's the very, again, before you get to the new covenant, he's the mediator of the new covenant. So you better get the mediator down before you, you can't understand the new covenant till you get, yeah.